I think the root of all performance improvement lies in self-awareness and mindset. Welcome to the Supermanagers Podcast, where we interview leaders from all walks of life to tease out the habits, thought patterns, learnings, and experiences that help them be extraordinary at the fine craft of management. Our goal is to bring you the lessons and the insights so that you don't have to learn through your own mistakes, but so that you can shortcut your way to being a great leader. This podcast is brought to you by Fellow, a software platform that helps managers and their teams collaborate on meeting agendas, track action items, and turn chaotic meetings into productive work sessions. Check it out at www.fellow.app. Hey, fellow managers and leaders, I'm Aiden, and I'm the CEO of fellow.app. Today's guest is Dave Bailey. He's an experienced coach and mentor to scale up CEOs. Over the last 12 years, Dave has co-founded multiple VC-backed tech businesses, including Easy Learn, Delivery Hero, and Spot Night. Now, as a founder coach, his goal is to provide other entrepreneurs with the practical skills that he wished he had when he was managing teams for the first time. In today's episode, Dave explains how managers can use questions as a powerful tool. He also tells us why staying curious just a little bit longer can always get us to the root of the real issue and why most problems aren't what they initially seem. Last but not least, we talked about goal settings, OKRs, and how leaders can work backwards with initiative. If you found this helpful to your leadership journey, send me a note on Twitter. My handle is at Aiden at A-Y-D-I-N or tag us using the hashtag supermanagers. Now, without further ado, here's Dave Bailey on episode 65 of the Supermanagers podcast. Dave, welcome to the show. Aiden, thanks so much for having me. So Dave, really uh, glad to have you on the show. You've obviously had an extensive career uh, as a leader and a coach to tech CEOs, uh, and you're actually a sponsored medium author. You write about management, communication, psychology, uh, the works. Uh, I have to ask you, how did medium get a hold of you and how did you end up becoming a sponsored author there? Oh, well, you know what? I, I, after I was, so my, I started my career as a, you know, venture backed founder, I did three companies, wide variety of exits, and then found myself working in VC in London. And as I was working with the portfolio founders, I wanted a channel to kind of consolidate my ideas as I was looking over multiple companies. And I turned to medium to start blogging those ideas. And that's how it started. I think the cachet, you know, you get a little bit of a cachet when you got an investor, uh, investor title that helped me get my first few readers. But interestingly, one of the learnings that happened to me very quickly as I got into VC was that, uh, you know, going into companies with a sort of consultant mindset with a kind of I'm here to help mindset doesn't always work out. So one of the first lessons I learned was it's, it's actually better to take a coaching approach than a consulting, a consulting approach. I wrote an essay called Why Founders Need Coaches, Not Consultants. That essay ended up becoming the number one search result for the term founder coach globally for about three years. And that's how I got into coaching because that essay generated a lot of uh, CEOs who saw my background and were looking for a coach. And uh, at the same time, got me a lot of, I guess, a lot of new readers. And then Medium picked me up to, um, you know, and, and gave me some incentives to keep writing, which I gladly took because you know what? Writing for me is, is really a need 
not a strategy. Like I, uh, I need, I really find, in fact, you've caught me in a, a writing week. So for the last uh, three days, I've been literally locked away at my mom's house where I can get some, some peace in order to crystallize my ideas. But that's how I got into writing and how Medium found me. Yeah, that, that's amazing. So I have to ask, what, what is the difference between consulting and coaching? Well, you know what? I heard a great definition uh, just the other day, which was that consultants give you great answers to your questions and coaches give you great questions to your answers. And I like that because for me, the art of coaching is really about understanding how questions work, which questions provide the right space for, for clients to think things through. And they're a very empowering tool, right? In, in the kind of manager's toolkit. And I know we're going to talk a lot about management later. Questions are a really powerful tool just because they help, uh, they help provide that space that we all need sometimes to think things through and find our own answers. Yeah, I really like that definition. I, I haven't heard that before. Uh, so they provide, coaches provide questions to the answers that, that you already have within you. I like that. That's right. Yeah. You know, the coaching toolkit is, is very broad, right? So it's, this is very much a simplification. Um, coaches also will provide feedback. They, they can, uh, you know, one thing I, I learned very quickly is that often you turn to a coach, not just for, for questions, but sometimes you need some, someone to tell you what they see and even give you some advice too. So I have a very uh, kind of broad view of coaching, but I think that definition does capture the essence where questions really, really are at the core of what, coaching is about. Yeah, I, th I think that makes a lot of sense. So you were the founder of three venture backed companies. I have to ask you, so, so you've managed a lot of teams. Were you always good at it? Or did you make some mistakes early on? <laughs> <laughs> did, I, did I make some mistakes? The answer, of course, is yes. I don't know if anyone could would ever give a different answer. You know, um, I, so I, you know, I, I actually, my first job, I was a management consultant. So I got into entre entrepreneurship back in 2007, but before that I was working in consulting and in consulting, there's a very specific management style. Um, it tends to be very deadline driven because you've got a client, client gives you the deadline, you make move world, you know, you move worlds in order to, to meet the deadline. It tends to be top down. So you've got partners in the project, they kind of define the high level, the analysis, the structure of the deck that you do. And the outputs are pretty known, right? Like in consulting, it's a PowerPoint deck, it's an Excel, maybe a few analyses and interviews along the way. Um, and so when I got into, into tech, you know, uh, when I started managing teams, my first team that I managed was a product team. I took those same philosophies I learned in consulting into, into tech. And you know what? Didn't work, right? Because tech is a very different environment. Firstly, you know, there's a lot more uncertainty. Even when you're d designing interfaces, like anyone who's designed an interface and felt so confident it was going to work out just fine or you know, planned out how the code was going to go over the next two months. And you, know, you, you quickly realize that you can't do that. There's just so much uncertainty inherent to tech. Uh, so deadlines can often break down, at least if you don't define them properly. And, um, and so, yeah, I made a lot of mistakes. I think in part, in part because I, I hadn't yet learned how to translate uh, the skills I learned in my, in my previous jobs into the tech environment. What, what was the key difference? So it, it was more top down in the consulting world, but, but in tech, you, you couldn't pull it off the same way. You know, it didn't work for me at least. And 
I, it all cum, culminated. So, you know, we were like many, I mean, this was back in 2008, first off. So we were kind of a lot of the, the, you know, the standard things that you learn in entrepreneurship, they just weren't common knowledge at the time. So we were really just making it up as we went along. And so it was, a, you know, we, our launch was, was delayed. Firstly, we, you know, we had this big launch plan. That's something that, you know, you get, that gets beaten out of you pretty quick, but everything was delayed. You know, the team was struggling. It was a lot more early debt that seemed to rear its head. So we, we were just really, really struggling. And then, but I thought I was on it, right? Like, you know, you set the deadlines, you manage, you, you keep forward looking. And then one day my, my best designer, a guy called Danilo, who I just respected so much and he was just performing extremely well, came into my office and said, Dave, I'm leaving. And I was like, wait, wait what? Really? We, dude, we need you, man. Why are you leaving? And he said, well, there's this other company uh, we were based in Rio de Janeiro in Brazil at the time. And he's like, this is other company. And they're doing this thing called Agile. And I'm like, Agile? We're we're super Agile. I didn't know what Agile meant at that point. I said, we're super. He's like, no, no, like they're doing this thing called Scrum. And I played rugby. And I was like, what, they're playing rugby? No. Playing. So anyway, I said, look, stay. And what I'll do is I commit to getting an Agile trainer in to train the whole company how to do agile. We we're about 30 people at the time. And that's what we did. We found this amazing agile trainer by the name of Rodrigo, who came in, taught us all agile. And that for me was a massive, massive turning point. It's actually one of the reasons why I'm such a big uh, advocate for training, not just because of the skill that it provides, but also that kind of there's something around like education that that helps people form bonds, gives people shared language so they can communicate to each other better. And that for me, that was, you know, I ended up becoming an agile, you know, agile certified. That was my, my introduction into kind of managing in tech environments. And for me, it's, it's like a fundamental skill. If you want to be manager of a tech team, a product team, understanding the concepts of agile management, very, very important. So when it comes to delegation then, uh, and you know, the, the, this whole, you know, moving from consulting and into tech, uh, you write a lot about, you know, how to de delegate work so it actually gets done. What is the key to doing that? Because I, I do find that a lot of managers have, especially, you know, when, when you first get into the role, it does, it is difficult to delegate tasks. Um, how would you say that like you've coached uh, CEOs and leaders to delegate more effectively? Yeah. Well, I'm curious, like what are some of the things that you have found difficult as it relates to delegation? I, I think the, uh, the questions that I, I've heard posed to me uh, most often are how do you, um, you know, how do you not over micromanage? Uh, th th this has been a, a concept. So, for example, you know, basically not, not getting to the point where, uh, you know, not trusting employees fast enough to, to allow them to do things. Or uh, when you see that the work is produced, maybe it's not to the level uh, that you thought that it could be. Uh, this is one. The other one is, like, how do you know um, when you can keep uh, I guess delegating more work. Uh, there's always this like uh, this balance of like what should I delegate versus what should I keep. Um, how, how, when do you know when too much delegation is, is too much? Uh, th these are some of the questions that that I think like we get asked often. Yeah, I, I do, I've never met anyone who. Um, who finds delegation completely easy. Like there's just something inherently difficult 
around delegation in part because I think, you know, our, our brains are sort of pro, you know what, when, when you start out in, in your first job, you are a doer, right? You learn how to plan, you learn how to, um, to execute on tasks. And then very quickly, uh, as you scale the ladder, you, you end up becoming, you know, managing people. And right at the top, you know, when I'm dealing with CEOs, they're full-time people managers, you know, when they, they get to fundraise, that's one thing they can do. They can also lead strategy development, but they're, they're, they spend a lot of time in one-on-ones, in meetings, managing other leaders, right? And in some ways, that's an easier position to be than if you're on the front line. Because at that point, you're you often, you know, when you get promoted into becoming a manager, you're also an IC as well. You're also an individual contributor as well. So you have to manage work and manage other people, which becomes very, very difficult. So like management is very, very challenging. When I wrote the piece around delegating uh, problems, not tasks, it was really to speaking to the need that, um, you know, the first step is to really frame what the role, what your role is as a manager in your head clearly, and really allow others to solve problems, right? You don't have to be the solver of problems. Sometimes you need to solve problems. I get it. But, but as a general rule of thumb, you want to empower your team to solve their own problems. So you want to delegate problems back to them and rather than sort of telling them what to do. And if you, it, you know, it's messy, it's a bit messy and it's, I'm not saying there's only one way to do it, but if you can do that over a period of time, then you can start to empower your team and build and allow them to build the skills they need. Um, if you don't do that, then, well, we, we know what happens, right? They keep coming back for your decisions. You become the bottleneck more and more and more. And, uh, you know, and it's exhausting, right? Like making decisions all the time is exhausting. You know, I had uh, th- th- this one time, and, and it just goes back to problems and, and not tasks, right? Um, I had this, uh, this uh, one person that, you know, was asking me about, I have this employee and, um, you know, I'm trying to get them to do all this work. And so what I've done is I've made it as simple as possible. I've taken, you know, the thing that we're, we're trying to do, and I've broken it up literally into 25 different steps, like micro steps. Like there's no way that you can, you can get this, uh, you know, you can get this wrong. And I find that the, the productivity level is not as high as I would expect it to be. Um, and, and this was, uh, uh, I, I guess perplexing, but this is like a classical example of, you know, you're delegating a whole bunch of little tasks um, as opposed to, you know, here's the, you know, the outcome that, that we want. Yeah. Well, look, let me make it even more nuanced and complex, right? Because as a, as a business scales, roles tend to become more specialized, right? So at the beginning, when you're kind of a handful of people, everyone's wearing multiple hats, Everyone, you know, you need to be super empowered because there are no, not even that cl- much clarity over what your job actually is. And then as you grow, things get more specialized. Now, there's a, some really interesting research in, t- in terms of wh- when does empowered management work best? Because uh, it doesn't work all the time. Um, and it turns out that when you have a task that's fundamentally process driven, actually empowered management is not the right form of management. So if you have someone whose job is just to follow you know, maybe you've got a, a finance administrator who's going through making sure the taxes are paid, invoices are, are filed and so forth. You know, a, a, a really wide, you know, empowered approach probably isn't, isn't necessarily the best, at least not in every situation. And then you have other, you have other roles that are fundamentally creative. So, you know, talk, going back to product management and uh, 
and engineering. These are fundamentally creative uh, activities. In those, empowered management is a lot more effective if you're working with people who, who seek empowerment and want to solve problems and move forward. Interesting. So, so in some cases, it actually does make sense to break it down into a bunch of different tasks and delegate tasks and not problems. And, and you know what it is? I think we all want that one bit of advice that if we just follow it, it's going to work every time. And, you know, every essay I learn I, I, that I've written, I, you know, I'm promoting some idea, some framework, some concept, and it works some of the time, but it doesn't work all the time. Um, and so the way I think about mm, the growth of a manager is, you know, you're acquiring these new these new tactics, these new techniques, frameworks, and your job is to know which framework to use at, at the given moment in time. But I, you know, I haven't found that one size fits all just yet. Still waiting. So let's talk about, you know, something uh, more, more tactical on this front of like deciding when to delegate and, and when to take something on. And this isn't necessarily just like a frontline manager problem. I think it extends to, uh, you know, senior leaders, even the, the CEO of a company. Like when you're coaching CEOs, um, and how do, you, how do you get them to sort of like differentiate what it is that they can um, delegate and when they should like really get involved and roll up their sleeves. You know, like even if, even if you are at the point of delegating a problem, say for example, you have, um, you know, basically like a customer renewal problem uh, and a certain number doesn't look the way that it should. Is that like, how would you, like, how do you decide if that's something that you delegate or something that you want to dig in on yourself? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know what? I, I, again, I don't have a standard approach. It really is going to depend. You know, when we're working on problems like that, uh, when I'm working on problems like that with clients, you know, what I can do is start to ask questions that will give clarity over what what is going to be right at that particular point in time. So it's obviously going to depend on, you know, who, who you're de delegating to on your own um, bandwidth. But you know what, like one of the big challenges, so I, I've specialized in, in, in just working with C of scale up CEOs. So I don't work with any other leaders at this, uh, at this point, just CEOs. And one of the big challenges is, uh, you know, it almost characterizes the journey from founder to CEO is going from being that sort of hustler, individual contributor to a people manager. So right around, you know, when you hit around a hundred people, uh, that's really the point where you realize the problems in the company, even if you wanted to tackle them, you couldn't because either you don't know how or um, you're, you're, just, you're a bit too far away from the actual details of the problem and you have to rely on your leaders. And that's a really weird experience for someone who, I mean, uh, you know, I can speak personally. I, I love doing stuff, you know, like I, I, I get a lot of satisfaction. I'm a starter finisher through and through. So I love that feeling that you get when you when you solve a problem or you complete something, and so, um, so the the other you know part of this uh, of this uh, context on like when to delegate or not is you also have this bias to probably want to step in and solve the problem. So you know we need to take this bias, make it visible, interrogate it, and then figure out what the right thing is for you, for the business, um, and for your team. So at some point, it, it does seem like you do get forced into operating in this in this other way of not trying to solve everything yourself. Because like you said, so once you're over 100 employees, like even if you wanted to, 
you couldn't get there. So I, I think like the, the interesting question is, uh, is it that you get there first and you're forced into operating that way or do you start operating that way and that helps you scale <laughs> so that you get there? So that's, uh, uh, I guess, like a nuance there. Um, one, one question that I, that I will ask is like, and this is something, so, you know, person comes up to you, um, you know, on your team, you're in a one-on-one -on -one and, you know, they basically come in with, with a problem uh, for you to address. How do you, how do you approach that? What, what is your advice on approaching that? Oh, is this specifically in the context of one-on-ones? Uh, no, it's, it's not necessarily in this uh, context of one-on-ones, but, it, it, but it's more I'm trying to get at the, uh, you know, how do you have restraint and not trying to, like, dive in and solve problems yourself? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, look, I can, let, me, let me share a couple of things that have helped me a lot with that. Because, um, of course, you're right. The temptation is someone comes with the problem, we got, you know, you're, you're a quick mind. I'm pretty sure you, you, you have a, you have a point of view very, very quickly. Right. And it would just be so easy to, to give it away. So, you know, a piece of advice that, uh, you know, a fellow coach passed on to me is just, his name is Michael. And he said, just stay curious a little bit longer. Cause when someone comes to you with a problem, particularly a problem that is very, well, firstly, let's distinguish between a couple of different types of problems. There's uh, there's one problem, which is I'm looking for the bathroom. Can you let me know where it is? Now, the answer to that isn't, well, what are you trying to achieve? Like, you know, how do you feel about going to the bathroom? What, what would you do when you get there, right? No, the answer to that question is the bathroom is just over there. So, you know, some, you know, informational questions should be met very quickly. Um, or or if, if this is something they could just Google, you know, you might direct them to Google and say, look, you know, it, it, et cetera. So, but, but some of the, sometimes coaching can be the right approach. And so I would just advise you to have the mindset, I do this all the time with my clients, that the problem that they come, in, they come to you with isn't the real problem. So a question you could ask at that point is you could say, what's the real challenge here for you? And that's a question that will force some level of introspection. And, you know, they, maybe they came about some, you know, they got a problem with, uh, problem with the spreadsheet or something like this, or a problem with the code. And they might come, you know, and who knows what they're, how they're going to answer that question, right? But flipping it back to really disambiguate what the real problem is because often the problem people come to you with is not the problem that is the real problem yeah so i think that makes a lot of sense and it's almost uh, it also i know you said you came from product management it also comes from a uh you know sometimes a customer comes to you with a problem uh and they suggest a solution but you know you should probably figure out what the problem is uh, in, in a bit more detail and, and stay curious for a bit longer. I love that piece of advice of just stay curious for a little bit longer uh, to make it, um, yeah, to, to get to the root of the issue. And sometimes, yeah, what you first hear is not actually the problem that you're looking to solve. Yeah. Well, you know, if, if, if it was, it'd be too easy, <laughs> wouldn't it? So, I mean, you know, I got an interesting story in that. I was working with a company. This is, we're talking, we're going back quite a long way now because I was actually doing some, uh, was helping on in, in, the, in a product capacity. And we got the whole leadership team, CEO uh, included, and there was a real crisis between sales and between, between product. And what was happening is uh, customers were saying to sales, like one of the key issues we have with this dashboard is that we can't move the elements around. Like we really need the ability to move elements around so we can customize it. And the sales team were like saying, look, we can't sell this, we're, you know, or we're going to lose customers because this, this problem. 
So I organized a, uh, a customer interview where um, the customer agreed to be interviewed in the presence of all of these uh, all these senior leaders. And so one of the questions I asked is, I said, well, if you had the ability, and, and sure enough, that same problem came up. Customer said, we really need to be able to move stuff around. So I said, oh, well, imagine you had that feature right now. What would you do with it? And they said, well, what we need at the top is a banner so that we can promote the, you know, the most important thing to the people who are using this system. I said, oh, great. What else? What else would you do with it? They're like, no, no, that, that, that's why we need it. We just need this banner at the top. And there's this big moment that happened in the product team where they were like, oh, okay. So they say they want to move stuff around, but what they really need is a banner at the top. And that's much easier to implement than like having these movable segments and stuff. Sales team didn't get it. They're like, see, they need to move stuff around. And so, you know, there is this moment when you realize a lot of times we'll come with a particular strategy to help us meet a particular, you know, a particular need, but just that little bit of curiosity and those, those few extra questions can help you arrive at something that's often far easier to help someone with than what they originally wanted. Yeah, I think I think that's that's really good advice. Always stay curious for just a little bit longer. Let's talk about uh, goal setting. Um, so goal setting, you know, obviously core part of uh, leading teams. Um, one of the questions that, that I want to ask you about is, you know, setting um, ambitious goals. Say you set an ambitious goal and you're now a few months into that. Um, and it doesn't look like you're, you're progressing, you know, towards that goal. Um, it doesn't look like you're going to hit it. And, and you, have a, you have an opportunity where, where the team comes to you and says, you know, like, I, I think we should revise the goal and revise it down. Um, how, how do you react to that? Yeah. Has, have you been in a situation where that's happened? Actually, yes. Quite recently. Yeah. What, tell, me, tell us what happened. Uh, so, <laughs> without going into too, too much detail. Uh, yeah, we basically had this, uh, have this ambitious target uh, on, uh, on, on something we're working on. And uh, we are we are not necessarily tracking well according to it. And and I think like the you know the, the first approach was uh, the the first suggestion from the team was let's let's change the uh, let's change the target and, and make it something more realistic. Um, and uh, my view on it was no, I think like the target is a good target, and I think we can do it. We just haven't figured out the right approach uh, to get us there. Uh, and so the question is, so I think like what we've realized is maybe the approach that we're taking isn't going to get us to that target, uh, but maybe we need a revised approach or maybe we need to think about the problem differently. Um, so so that, that's, that's basically how we approached uh, this particular situation. But, it, but I do think it is, a, it is a fine balance, right, when it comes to uh, OKRs in general. I know that at least uh, how, how these used to be run at Google, it's about you know, set ambitious goals and only meet 70% uh, of the target. So I'm just curious, like, how, how you think about, you know, making ultra-achievable goals or setting more ambitious targets. Um, and, yeah, how, how you think about that in general. Yeah, well, look, first, I relate to, I mean, I remember my first company, we had incredible, we had an amazing spreadsheet that told you exactly how much revenue we were going to be making in year five. That was back in the time when you needed, like, a five-year model. 
And boy, if I'd have, if we'd have hit those targets, I would be I wouldn't be here now. I'd be on a on an island somewhere in the Caribbean. So look, tar- you know, targets um, and uh, tar- targets are tricky. But let me answer this and you know maybe take a, a stab at it, but from a different angle, which is I think the root of all performance improvement lies in self awareness and mindset. Okay, so if you think about any performance management system which is what, which is kind of maybe going to set some goals, review them at the end of the, at the end of the quarter or at the end of the month and, uh, and then set some new goals, right? The, the reason why that system would lead to improved performance over say not measuring the goals is it provides a moment in time to reflect, to look backwards, say, okay, this is what, this is what we thought would happen. This is what actually happened. And then to look forwards and say, well, actually next time, here's what we've learned. Here's what we're going to do differently. Again, what's really going on is that that self-reflection is increasing your 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 self-awareness. And if you if you you know one of my I, I mentioned this to a client and they they rightly pushed back. They said, well, it's also mindset too because you can people, there are a lot of people who have the awareness but they just don't want to improve. They just don't want to change. So, but when you got that magic that magic pair, we have the mindset and the self-awareness. That's when performance can really happen. So the target is just a tool. Uh, for, in my point of view, this is I know getting a bit meta, but it's just a tool to drive accountability by which I mean, you know, real review of like how things are going, what decisions were made, why they were taken the way they were taken, what can we learn from the past? And to, you know, if we're, if we're, you know, no point learning this stuff if we don't put it into practice. So to figuring out what to do in the next cycle. So if you don't miss your targets in one cycle, what I think needs to happen is a reflection, like let's get to the end of the cycle, reflect, I mean, you can push the red button and, and stop a cycle midway if you really want to, but get to the end of the cycle, say, we didn't meet the target. Why? What, 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 was, what, what was our role in this? Was it, was it the wrong target? Was it the right target? Did we, could we have behaved differently? Is this, and then really agree on a new target, which can still be ambitious, but it needs to be achievable because, you know, on that mindset piece, if people don't believe they can achieve it, then, well, you know, they're not going to try, right? That's, we, need, we need to have some belief that it's tangible, that it's achievable. And so that's, I don't it's not, is that a direct answer or maybe a bit indirect? But I think, you know, the, the point of the target is to inspire, you know, bold action and provide a moment in time where you can review and then get better. Yeah, I, I, I think the, um, I think when it comes to a lot of these sorts of things, uh, the timeline is, is also important, right? So is this a, you know, is this a goal that we are maybe three days away from? And, you know, now we're, we're not there. And, you know, at that point in time, or, you know, we're a month away from, it's, it becomes harder to do things uh, when you're very, very close to, to that, you know, timeline. Uh, but if the timeline is a little bit further out, like you said, if you have cycles of reflection and, and there's multiple cycles leading up to, um, to that end state, then you actually have the opportunity to reflect and change course so that, you know, there is still the opportunity to, to be able to hit the target. So I think what you said about reflection uh, is very good and uh, goals should probably be reviewed, right? And so that you actually have the opportunity to reflect, course correct, and then like uh, strategize and then hit the target. Yeah. And you know what? I have a, I have a very, uh, what I think is a pretty differentiated way of thinking about objectives and key results as well, which, which may be useful. So 
one thing that I, I, I learned, you can't avoid it when you're a coach because what you quickly learn is that the root of pretty much all meaning comes from helping others, right? So, um, you know, ultimately we get a lot of meaning in our work from helping others. And so one of the, one of the you know, I guess tips, if you like, of framing objectives is really clarifying who you're serving and what you're helping, how you, you know how you're helping this person. And in a startup, there's really only two people that you're serving. You're either serving customers directly, or you're serving teammates who are serving customers, right? Maybe there's a third one, which is you know maybe serving the community or um, serving other stakeholders. But really, it comes down to are you, you know are you serving customers here or are you serving teammates? And that level of clarity over objectives can be very very helpful, right? So maybe let's call that part one. Part two is what happens is, remember I told you, you know, we're all kind of from a very early on, we're designed to think in terms of outcomes and tasks and, uh, and um, uh, initiatives. So what happens typically with OKRs, you know, I've probably implemented or coached uh, CEOs implement OKRs, maybe 40 different companies, and it takes multiple iterations. But one of the learnings really seems to be it's so tempting to try and jam initiatives into the OKRs framework because it's just how our mind works. Right. So example I, I, I might use is like we need to get the website done. Right. So is that an objective? Is that a key result? I'd argue that's an initiative. Right. Maybe the, obje the objective is to help prospects to understand the product and sign up. Maybe it's something else, but I think it's a great conversation. What is the objective here? And the key result might be maybe a conversion rate or some kind of quantitative or qualitative, maybe you ask, you know, you know, ask 10 customers what they think of the website afterwards and they, you know, want to get a, a good score, maybe do an NPS or operate the product market, uh, product market fit survey as examples of qualitative metrics. But having clarity over the how you will measure success, that's the key results, and who you're serving, that's the objective, that can tee up a conversation around initiatives. What initiatives do we think are going to help prospects, you know, understand the product and sign up? Um, and it also really helps when you're making decisions, particularly on that website, it's going to get very detailed, understanding why you were doing that website. That's the power of what OKRs can offer. But, but you don't get that if, if the website becomes your, your, um, your OKR. Now, the reason I bring that up is because you said, you know, it depends on the timeline. These objectives, which are typically around helping people, um, they typically live in a space where there is kind of no absolute done. There's only degrees of done. And then what you're really looking at is what initiatives are possible and desirable and valuable in the time period. And then you're managing in a different way, right? You're managing initiatives. And ideally they're managing their own initiatives with the flexibility of swapping them out if they aren't meeting the objective, right? So I, anyway, I would just kind of um, just volunteer that as, a, as a, an, a way to think about OKRs that helps you preserve uh, people's autonomy to swap out their plans and tasks when they realize they're not working out. Yeah, so this is very interesting, like, because, you know, no company today doesn't have a website. Websites should be refreshed every so often. Um, and, you know, how do you know that you've done a successful refresh, you know? And like you said, there's no done, there's just different stages of done. Uh, so this is a very important point, and uh, and and yeah, how how do you basically like turn initiatives into objectives? So I think like the the concept of like tying it to a specific end result, uh, to a specific number, conversion rate, you know, communication bounce rate, you know, so something numeric or something that is actually measurable in some way, even if it's a 
qualitative way, but it, as long as it's measurable, um, it'll, it'll form a lot more clarity around what you're, you're actually doing. So that when you have achieved it, you know that you are done for the purpose of uh, you know, the work that you're doing. And, and like you said, that gives you the ability to swap out different initiatives. Uh, so that just in case one isn't working, you can bring in another one that maybe gets you to the same place. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I'll tell you a secret, right? Like how, how, I mean, the, the secret is when I'm working with clients and we, you know, when you look at someone's OKRs, you can very quickly see the, the tasks, right? That are either, they're either posing as an objective or they're posing as a key result. And and the way one way the way I do it is I work backwards because the I mean if the brain is going to you know force is going to think in terms of initiatives let it and then work back backwards who am I really trying to serve with this initiative and how would I know if the initiative is successful or not other than it just being done right because I know we all love done we want to get to done and working backwards there is something quite magical particularly so if you do this in your planning period you know you've got planning cycle maybe you do. Um, some sort of strategy review and you, and you replan for the next cycle. Um, when you do this, what you find is by clarifying who you're serving and what you're trying to help them to do, you often find new initiatives that achieve the same thing that take half the time. They, you know, I, I kind of think of this as like a metrics driven approach to planning, because once you identify the, how you're going to measure success, all of a sudden this, this bout of creativity comes and it can be very, could be very cool like to see to see that creativity emerge and to realize wow we didn't need to do that website after all we just needed to do this other thing which is much quicker but it's going to have the same result or maybe all we needed is uh, we needed to put a banner at the top <laughs> or just put a banner at the top being like buy here exactly i mean i like that because it does loop back to what we were talking about earlier right just this concept of uh you know, stay curious for a little bit longer. Even on the initiatives, we need to do this. Okay, why do we need to do this? What is the objective? Are there other ways to do it? So I think that that makes a lot of sense. Hey there, just a quick note before we move on to the next part. If you're listening to this podcast, you're probably already doing one-on-one meetings. But here's the thing. We all know that one-on-one meetings are the most powerful, but at the same time, the most misunderstood concept and practice in management. That's why we've spent over a year compiling the best information, the best expert advice into this beautifully designed 90 plus page ebook. Now don't worry, it's not single spaced font, you know, lots of text. There's a lot of pictures. It's nice, easily consumable information. We spent so much time building it. And the great news is that it's completely free. So head on over to fellow.app slash blog to download the definitive guide on one-on-ones. It's there for you. We hope you enjoy it and let us know what you think. And with that said, let's go back to the interview. Dave, one thing that we should definitely talk about is, is meetings. Uh, since since the pandemic, people have uh, been meeting more, not less, uh, and the world has has really changed. I think it, it, it's a topic that you know we think a lot about. Uh, you've written about. You have this uh, methodology that you call designing the alliance. It has a really cool title. Uh, what 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 does that mean? It sounds it it sounds a lot more fun than just having a meeting. Uh, designing an alliance. Uh, so what is that? Yeah. Okay. So this is, you know, when you, when you become a coach and you take your coach training, this is one of the, 
This is one of the techniques they teach you early on, which is that when you're in a coaching relationship, taking a few minutes at the beginning of any session, just to make sure that, you know, uh, people are going to get what they need out of the out of the the session is is really worth it's really worth taking the time so you can apply the same approach in any meeting really where you're asking essentially three questions one is what do we need to commit to to get the most out of this meeting open question there's group around the table you know we need to stay present okay great we need to put our mobile phones away uh, we need to listen whatever it might be next question is um, are we going to give each other permit permission to hold those commitments? Now, when you ask for permission, nine times out of 10, you get yes. Yes, of course. How would, and then third question is, how would you like to, us to do that? And people are like, oh, just, just call me out. Just put your hand up. Maybe you could inject some humor in and, uh, you know, f- find, a, find a different way to, to, to set that up. But those three questions, uh, what are we going to commit to? Do we have permission to hold those commitments? And how would we like to... Um, and you know, uphold those commitments. They can they can provide everybody with the tools needed to uphold those commitments, right? So if you see someone in the meeting and they're they're um, maybe taking the steering away from the agenda, right? Maybe we want to commit to the to staying to the agenda and parking things in the parking lot for later, then it gives everyone not just the the permission to uphold them, but also the how, right? Oh, we're going to do that by raising our hand, or we're going to do that by calling it out or reminding people. Um, so that, that's really what Designing Alliance can do. And it's particularly useful in meetings that, um, you know, uh, where you, you can predict it'll be difficult to manage later on. Uh, and you can use that tactically in order to, you know, to set up the right rules of the game, the ground rules. Yeah, so I guess a lot about a lot of it is the ground rules, but but I guess the other thing that you're doing maybe subtly is you're also defining a, a purpose uh, for everybody getting together. And so if you start it by reiterating what the purpose is, I mean that just the just the like the the workflow of defining a purpose, sta- stating the purpose probably just builds a lot more alliance. Every everybody's on the same page. And, and in a world where you're going from, you know, meeting to meeting to meeting, uh, sometimes being reminded of the, the, the purpose of, you know, a meeting that you're having is probably not a bad thing. Yeah. Well, I, I, let me speak to coaching sessions, which are probably most analogous to one-on-ones in a company then, because uh, you, you design the alliance, which is very quick set up, making sure ground rules are in place. Then you go into kind of setting up the agenda. So in a one-on-one, people run it in many different ways. Sometimes people send topics before the one-on-one. Some people arrive and, and just get into it. But what will happen is you might ask, and so let's actually expand it. Maybe this is a group session, right? You could ask the question, what would each of you like to get out of this meeting? So that's a little bit like uh, coming back to purpose. And of course, people are going to bring different objectives. Different. Everyone has their own purpose, right, for the meeting. So clarifying that at the beginning can be helpful. But one of the interesting features of uh, particularly one-on-ones coaching is that people will say, well, at the end of this session, I want to. this is what I want to get out of it. And you might take them at face value. They're like, oh, okay, cool. Well, let, let's move towards that. But often just providing, a, again, it's that staying curious a little bit longer, but just providing a little more, bit more space. How do we create space? We ask a few more questions. Can often allow, help us refine the agenda. And often what people think they want coming into the meeting isn't actually what they really want. And so, so agendas, uh, you know, I've sort of learned to be a little bit fluid with agendas. Of course, it's nice to, you know, have a firm starting point, 
But actually, uh, sometimes uh, what people take from the meeting isn't even what they came to the meeting for. And so, so being a bit open to that and allowing people to get what they need from the, from the meeting, which may, they may or may not know. Um, again, I'm talking in the coaching space, right? Not necessarily if this was a, I don't know, a sales yeah, meeting like or something like that. Yeah, a metrics review or something like this. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. So some meetings, I mean, that's it. I mean, the, the, other, the other essay that I wrote on meetings is called The Five Meetings of a CEO, um, which actually I wrote that maybe a couple of years ago. I, I now, I, I think I want to say there's six meetings now. Oh, what's a sixth meeting? Well, well, okay. So the five meetings are, you got the status update. Okay. You status update is for accountability, right? You got the one-on-one. One-on-one is, you know, for coaching and empowerment. You've got the, um, uh, getting, I'm going to get them completely out of order. So you've got the retro, right? That's for allowing people to kind of give their feedback and be heard. You've got Friday wins. That's for, that's to block in time to celebrate. Cause as we know, right? Like the job is never done. If you don't block in time to celebrate, you probably won't. Um, and then what am I missing now? Um, got the, uh, did I say one-on-ones? Yes. Yes. Uh, one-on-ones, retro, Friday wins. Status update. Status update. There's one more that I'm missing. Crikey. What is that then? Well, anyway, I'll tell you the sixth one. Uh, the sixth one is... Uh, and by the way, like I'm, you know, obviously putting you on the spot and, and getting you to recite <laughs> something like this, which, which is always like a challenge when, when you're on the spot. But what's the sixth one? Because this is the new one. No, I remember the other one. The other one's the all hands, right? All, right, right. all hands. Oh, okay. So that's different than the, the Friday wins. Yeah, I would. I think you can separate them out. Like it depends what you want from all hands. But all hands for me is is a point in time where the CEO can communicate to the entire company and leadership can communicate to the entire company. Maybe even you know there's different ways to run um, all hands. Some people have more of a town hall approach, whereas uh, Friday wins. And again, you can combine these meetings. There's more. It's more about the concepts. Friday wins is really about ending the week on a high, looking at what we've achieved, um, and and having a mandate to look at the positives, look at what we've done, celebrate the wins and to end on a high. Now the sixth meeting. So I, 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 you know, one of the things that comes up a lot in uh, when I'm working with the CEOs is the leadership team meeting. It's a difficult meeting for a number of different reasons. And there's lots of things written about it um, already. But one of the things I realized is happening in a leadership team meeting is that the agenda is typically pretty packed and it's pretty diverse. So on the one hand, you have like a status element of this agenda, like, like what's going on, like tell us what's, what's happening. But on the other, you have this sort of typically a space, maybe in the any other business or in topics to discuss, where in particular, you want to create a space for a discussion without necessarily getting to a resolution. And I say that because, of course, we want to get to resolution, but is it, is it realistic to get to resolution on each one of the topics on every single meeting? Probably not. And what happens is you leave the meeting feeling a little bit like half done or, you know, this kind of open space, right? Anyway, I was researching offset, offsites, as a matter of fact, and, and in the research, I realized that there are two processes that happen in a creative problem-solving process. One is a divergent process. This is where ideas are formed, possibilities are explored. Uh, it's very open-ended. Um, and then the other is a convergent process. This is where you make analyses, you make decisions, and you, know, you plan the path forward. And a big insight is that these two processes do not work well in the same part of the meeting, right? So if you've got someone who's trying to be like thinking of new ideas, new possibilities, 
sensibilities, maybe discussing controversial topics, then you've got someone else who's like analyzing them straight away. Now we tried that, it didn't work. Well, that just shuts it down. And similarly, if you're, tr if you're trying to get convergence over something, trying to, you know, uh, uh, finalize the plan and someone's coming up with new ideas. Maybe you're in a stand-up meeting, right? It's a very convergent meeting. Someone's like, oh, Aiden, have you done this, th this, and the other? Have you thought about that? And everyone's listening and you're like, oh, let's get the, yeah, the stand-up done first and then we can open this up, right? So, so I now think it's worth separating out the kind of convergent side of leadership at state of the, the updates and so forth into one meeting and have a separate meeting, which I'm calling forum, leadership forum, just to talk about topics where there's no need necessarily to come out with a very specific outcome. So that's the sixth meeting. Yeah, I, you know, I 100% I agree. It's so interesting. So my, uh, my co-founders and I have um, we meet twice, twice a week, uh, you know, once on a Wednesday and then once on a day in the weekend, it switches from Saturday to Sunday, depending on, uh, you know, life and other things. But, uh, we have specifically, we found that we can't, um, we call like Wednesday whirlwind Wednesday, because it's just the, all the things that we just need to discuss that are like more operational, what's going on. It, it, it's much more like the, you know, immediate problem solving type mode. And then the, the weekend session is much more about um, let's like take a topic and actually spend the time and like really think about it and problem solve. And it's more like a, a mini offsite. And so what we found is that uh, before we used to do these things, you know, whenever they came up, but then there, there is this clash, right? Which is like, oh, like, are we brainstorming too much? This is taking too long. We've got this other stuff to get to. Like you said, the list is too long. And so by separating it, uh, it does give us the freedom on, on, on the day where we're like, you know, very purposely doing blue sky type stuff. Um, it, it, it does it does help them run a lot better. And I, I, I wish we had started that a long time ago. Uh, this is a more recent discovery. Oh, and it, it's very subtle. I mean, it took me a long time to put my finger on what's going on. Because, you know, it's funny. If you ask, if you ask, you know, any, any number of CEOs how, what they think about the leadership team meeting, and you ask it in private, okay, you ask it in private, most of the time they're going to say a three to a five out of 10. Like there's this level of dis dissatisfaction that happens with the leadership. You know, the first, you know, uh, way, where your mind goes is, oh, well, maybe there's like clashes in the leadership. Maybe it's a people thing. But I actually started to, reason, uh, to, to realize it's partly an agenda thing too. And so, you know, just following on from that kind of convergence and divergence, because they don't work well together, it's really good to deliberately and distinctly separate them. So do the, you know, the divergent thing let, and then take a break a long break, maybe you want to sleep on it, maybe you want to take a week to think about it and then come back once the dust is, you know, metaphorically settled and then uh, look to converge, you know, analyze, plan, decide, whatever it might be. But this, but, but splitting them out has a, a lot of a lot of benefits. Yeah. So glad, glad to hear you're doing it. Yeah, no, this is uh, super helpful. The, the six uh, types of uh, meetings uh, really like this. Uh, Dave, this has been super insightful. I know we're we're getting close to time. We've talked about uh, you know so many different things. We talked about OKRs, staying curious for longer. Uh, you know, we talked about all the different types of meetings. Uh, so one question that we like to to always end with is for all the managers and leaders looking to constantly get better at their craft of leading teams. Um, what tips, tricks, resources, or parting words of wisdom? 
uh, would you leave them with? Obviously, we're going to link to all of your articles and, and the many, many, many things that you have written. Uh, so that aside, what else, uh, what else would you leave them with? Yeah. Okay. Well, look, um, so I, I, was a, I was a venture-backed founder for about 10 years before you know, getting into investing and into coaching. And when I learned coaching, I was like, I wish I learned this sooner. Because as the deeper you go into every field, whether you work in sales, whether you work in marketing, product, like it doesn't matter. The deeper you go into every field, you realize the power of questions. And I think there's something that like everything seems to converge at some level to the same basic insights. And for me, coaching was a very quick way to get it because coaching is by its nature a little bit agnostic. Uh, and it kind of helps you jump straight to that sort of, I don't know, wise question asker, right? And if you want to sell, if you want to sell, you've got to know the right questions to ask. If you want to build great products, you've got to know the right questions to ask. If you want to make a meaningful message land with the prospects, you've got to know the right questions to ask. So I would say my parting words of advice would be to just learn a few basic coaching techniques. There's some great books out there. I'm a big fan of... Michael Banier Stanley, who wrote The Coaching Habit, and he's got a new book called Taming the Coaching Monster, I believe. Um, uh, what other good books are there out there? And then there's a bunch of courses too. You know, I'm in the process of building a business that's designed specifically to help founders and their teams uh, learn and apply coaching skills in their businesses. But I really do believe that, you know, it's kind of the skill that as a leader, as a manager, I wish I'd learned a little bit sooner. So if you, you're, you are curious about that, and I've, I've also written a bunch about different coaching models that you can apply as a manager, just give it, give it a go, right? It's, um, it's definitely experiential. You learn by practicing it. But what I have noticed is, um, you know, I did, um, I did Chris Voss's Mastermind on Negotiation. Have you, oh, have yes. you done that one? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Right? The, uh, I guess the, the masterclass, right? The masterclass on masterclass.com. Yeah. yeah. yeah and he's talking amazing. about, it's amazing, right? Applied empathy and sort of the art of question, uh, the question asking, you know, when to, when to use why, when not to use why. So he, but you, but honestly, from the lens of a coach, I'm like, oh my God, this is, this is what coaches do. Like, oh, you know, and similarly, like when you take advanced sales training, right? You realize it's not just about, um, uh, you know, framing the benefits and so forth. It's about building relationships, it's about building trust. That's what coaches do, right? Um, and then, you know, I talked about products. Like, what would you do if, if you got there, right? What would you, that's a classic coaching question, right? The one that identified the banner as the answer. So there's a lot of insight that coaching brings to each of the disciplines. Uh, and it's not that, you know, it's not that complicated. So um, if you're, if you're curious, you know, go and find some resources and, and, tr and, and just try it, see what you get. And a great place to end it. Dave, thanks so much for doing this. Oh, how are you doing? Thanks for having me. And that's it for today. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Supermanagers podcast. You can find the show notes and transcript at www.fellow.app slash supermanagers. If you like the content, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so you can get notified when we post the next episode. And please tell your friends and fellow managers about it. It'd be awesome if you could help us spread the word about the show. See you next time.